Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O oh God, my strength and my Redeemer, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated, and good morning. And what a fine morning it is. Our text is taken from our uh, epistle reading in Philippians chapter 2, so if you would like to turn there in your Bibles, that would be good. You can, I'll say and or, you can follow along with, uh, with the handout that you have here in your bulletin and take some notes. I have always found that I listen better with ink pen in hand, but that's, uh, that is purely up to you. Well, the title of this sermon this morning comes from uh, an old theology book that I was looking through in preparation for this, and I didn't even know there was a sermon in it, but there were some sermons in the back. And it was a book by Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. How many of you, besides Dr. Henry and some others, know, know, you know Warfield? Uh, great Presbyterian clergyman and, and theologian who was uh, president at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the day. And uh, this, this was the title he gave to the sermon from this very text. And I, I thought, well... I, I can't improve upon that. That's exactly, that's exactly what this text is about. I'm also uh, not one for plagiarism, so I do believe in giving credit where it's due. I also am not one for reinventing the theological wheel. So I, I freely borrow from, from those who, who have said what, what I believe needs to be said, and especially if they said it even better. Uh, I'm reminded of the story of a, a woman who once once just criticizing her poor pastor up one side and down the other, just raking him over the coals over the poor quality of his preaching. And finally, the poor man said, Madam, when better sermons are written, I shall deliver them. <laughs> so, that probably ended the argument. I don't know if it helped his career or not. I'm, I'm also not into fads, and uh, we all have been around long enough to see fads come and go. Uh, how many of you had a Rubik's Cube? Come on, be honest with me, okay? Did any of you solve it without cheating and all that? It's no fun anymore. They got stuff online to tell you how to solve the things. I, I owned one back in the early 80s, and I hesitate to, say, hesitate to say in a sermon about humility that I'm proud of this, but I uh, solved it. I solved the thing. I'll have you know. Uh, and I say that with no pride because, truth be known, it's 10 hours of my life I would love to have back <laughs> at this point. What a grand waste of time. It shames me to even think about it. Well, at the top of my list, and I especially hate religious fads, at the top of my list is WWJD. I just don't like that fad. I won't ask how many of you still have your coffee cups or your little bracelets. I, I'm not going to pick on you today about that. But, but I do, and, and there's actually, another, is there another one up there? Now, see, this is what it leads to. What would Jesus brew? Coffee cups. I mean, really? But there's more to it than that. The, the problem I have with this kind of fad is this, that it asks the wrong question. And it leads to idle speculation, such as, what kind of car would Jesus drive today? People actually ask this. I don't know. A used Prius, perhaps, if he wanted to be politically correct. A Bentley? Well, only if he was a TV preacher could he afford that. Some of you got that. Okay. It's, the, it's just the wrong question. Would he own a car? Would he drive a car? Who knows? Who cares? The problem is this, that it misses the real question. The real question is not what would Jesus do. The real question is what did Jesus do? Amen? Amen. That's the real question, and that lies at the very heart of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you the gospel, and by this gospel you are saved. If you continue to hold fast to the things I taught you and have not believed in vain, for I delivered unto you this, that Jesus Christ did what? Died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day for our sins. Well, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus Christ did. But before he could do that, he had to do something else. He had to come to planet Earth. He had to re leave the realm of the spirit and the eternal and come to planet Earth in time and space and become one of us. And we call that event the incarnation in theological speak. Literally, it means the enfleshment. Jesus took on human flesh. He took on a body just like ours. We don't take on flesh. We are flesh and blood. You've never existed outside of your body and you're gonna exist in this body until the day you die. And one of the greatest and clearest statements of this doctrine is found at the very heart of our text here in Philippians chapter two. So pick it up uh, at verse five, Philippians chapter two, verse five. Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clutched onto at all costs, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The text and most translations have it, emptied himself. And indeed that is the most literal way to render the Greek there. Uh, the, the King James says he made himself of no reputation. And indeed, if taken too, too literally, the idea of emptying himself can be misleading. It can, many, many have been misled that, by that. Warfield, for example, sees it as more figuratively. Warfield says that what this means is that he relinquished his heavenly status, not his divine being. He didn't become less than God, he just relinquished his heavenly status. He emptied himself. This is from Matthew Henry, who was an English uh, preacher in the 17th century. He emptied himself, that is, he divested himself of the honors and glories of the upper world to clothe himself with the rags of human nature. There's a little bit of a typo in your, in your notes here. You'll notice I didn't catch it till this morning. He emptied himself, divested himself of the honors and glories of the upper world so to clothe himself with the rags of human nature. And here he quotes uh, Hebrews 2.17, which says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So Jesus, though in the form of God, takes on the form of a servant. And that's exactly what John says in his gospel, isn't it? And I've given you a little bit of a, this is what John says. Jesus was in the form of God. John says the word was God. It means the same thing. Paul says he took on the form of a servant. John says the word became flesh. And it's really all just saying the same thing. So don't let this word form throw you off or scare you as if Jesus was, well, he was in the form of God, meaning there's something like he was a lot like God or a lot like us. Now, Warfield says this very clearly. What Paul asserts when he says that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God is that he had all those characterizing qualities which make God, God. The presence of which constitutes God and in the absence of which God does not exist. He who is in the form of God, Warfield says, is God. Pure and simple. Now, just need to move on because that's, that's not the thrust of what we're gonna say here. 
Why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this? Well, of course, as we said earlier, to save us. Uh, the Son of Man, he says all throughout the Gospels, came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, he came to restore us as his children. Jesus uh, said this all throughout, and the apostles say the same. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And that is to be our affirmation as well. He must be one of us in order to die for us. But, but Paul's emphasis here in, in, in Philippians chapter 2 is, is not the idea of the, of, of the atonement and him dying for us. No, Paul's emphasis here is on the incarnation himself, which is at the very heart of his appeal to the believers at Philippi and also to us on how we are to relate to one another, how we are to treat one another. Do you get that? We are to treat one another even as Jesus not so much what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do in emptying himself and becoming one of us, that kind of humility. And I, I need to point this out, that the liberal Protestantism that Warfield uh, took on and, and waged war against his entire life pretty much, that form of liberal, liberal Protestantism did then and still does today kind of just, just ignores the whole idea of Christ's death being an atonement a blood offering, a blood atonement for our sins. That, that, the phrase they used back in, back in those days was, well, that, that makes Christianity a slaughterhouse religion. And it's way beneath the dignity of our Lord and beneath Christianity to go. And, and they spoke of Jesus' death as a mere example of unselfish love. Well, beloved, if, if that's all Jesus did at the cross was just give us an example, if his, if his death did not somehow atone, well, it's a pretty sorry example of love. Is it not? Okay, I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm just going to go get myself killed. Even though I don't deserve to die, I'm going to just die at the hands of the enemies, and you'll know I really love you then. Uh, that's, that just doesn't, that just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, thankfully, we don't have to choose between the two. Now, with that in mind, I want us to go back to verse 1, because this is Paul's appeal. This is how Paul appeals to them and to us. He says in verse 1, if, big word, if there is any, encouragement in Christ. Is there any encouragement? Is this just a little, isn't there just any encouragement in Christ? The NIV says from being united with Christ. One of Paul's favorite ways to describe Christians is that we are those who are in Christ, meaning that we are absolutely united to Christ. Is there any encouragement for you this morning in knowing that? Is there now? By your, by, to know that you were never alone, that by your baptism, by God's grace through faith, you belong to Christ and you are actually united to Christ in a mystical way, in a very real, powerful way. I pray that it is. He goes on to say, is there any comfort from love? And obviously, he's referring to the love of Jesus for us. Can you even begin to grasp how much Jesus loves you? If you were raised in church as I was, you don't even remember learning the little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You probably learned that song, don't even remember learning it, right? So my question to you now, as a grown-up, or those of you who are getting to be grown-ups and so forth, do you, do you really believe that? Do you honestly believe in your heart of hearts? Do you, do you feel his love for you? Is, is that a comfort to you, to know that Jesus loves you? Is there any participation or fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Paul goes on to ask. The Douay version, the Roman Catholic translation of this says, is there a society of the Spirit? 
And I like that. Is there a society of the Spirit, a fellowship of the Spirit? And as I was thinking about this this past week, my mind suddenly just turned to Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, that wonderful trilogy, the first book of which is The Fellowship of the Ring. And, and, and it's this wonderful story. Most of you have either seen the movie or read the book. You should, really, of how these, these men, and when I say men, I mean human beings, how these, these human beings join themselves with hobbits and elves and dwarves and even with an old wizard to, to go and risk it all, to go out to conquer evil and save the world of men. Sounds a little like the gospel, doesn't it? You know, it really is. And, it's the, and you see that in the, in the books and in the movie, this bond that, that, that builds over the years with these unlikely guys who, they're, they're very different. I mean, it just couldn't be any more different. And yet they... they form this fellowship. He goes on to say, is there any affection and sympathy? And this is a strange word in the Greek. It's the word for guts, entrails, intestines. King James translates it bowels and mercies. And it's used some 11 times or so in, in, in the New Testament in the same way. Why? Because that was believed to be the seat of the emotions. And do we not still say that? Well, I have a gut feeling about this. Or you get some bad news and it feels like you were kicked in the gut, right? So, I mean, we still feel, that's, that's kind of how we feel things very deeply. There's actually a verb form of this, but it's only used of Jesus. Some 12 times in the gospel, a verb form that, that I don't know how you translate a verb for guts. <laughs> but, but, but it's usually translated, he had compassion. Or even better, he was moved with compassion and therefore did something about it. That's what Paul's getting at here. If there is any of this to be found in Jesus, Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing by selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. And there's the key. Count others more significant than yourselves. Then he says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And aren't you glad he threw in the only? <laughs> Think about it. And again in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Beloved, this is easy preaching. This is really easy preaching. These texts just kind of preach themselves, right? You guys know that. But it is exceedingly hard living. And I say that to point something out to you. This is not optional, okay? This is not optional. It's not extraordinary. It's not something for a few super saints and those who really are committed to Christ and, you know, who join a holy order or something like that. No, it is to be the norm. This is the status quo. This is to characterize your and my dealings with one another all the time. Whether we're new Christians, been Christians for years, Wherever we are in life, whatever our status is, this is it. And the key, of course, is humility, which is that most elusive of virtues. Very elusive. Opposite of pride. Pride is the top of the seven deadlies, right? And it's the opposite of that. I say it's elusive because what could make you more proud than to know that a fine, upstanding, wonderful person such as you are is also known for your humility? Right? And he's so humble. What a wonderful person. And she's so humble. 
Yes, and the head just continues to grow and grow, does it not? Well, quickly, what humility is not. It's not necessarily the result of being humiliated. Although, although, <laughs> some of you recalling a humiliating moment, even as I said that, right? Many times, our times of being humiliated were the result of our pride. Did we not bring it on many times <laughs> through our own pride and foolishness? Uh, and it can be a reality check. Secondly, it is not false modesty. Humility is not false modesty. As when someone thanks you or praises you for something you've said or done, and you say, oh, it was nothing. Oh, it was nothing at all. Think nothing of it. Or even worse, when we put a spiritual spin on it, you know, by attempting to give God the glory. And you better know your heart before you start doing that. You really should. Worst form of pride I cannot imagine. It is not self-loathing. It's not self-loathing. Putting yourself down. Even if you're just faking it. <laughs> many times we do that. In this regard, I immediately thought of Uriah Heap. How many of you have read David Copperfield? You probably read it in high school. Maybe not since, but... Uh, he's a character from that. And he constantly goes around referring to himself as this poor, humble person. I'm just a poor, humble person. When he's not that at all. He's anything but that. He's this deceitful, ambitious, blackmailing weasel. Horrible person. He even dares to say at one point in the book, I am well aware that I am the humblest person going. I'm more humble than anyone. Our Lord, not surprisingly, is our example, not the Uriah heaps of the world. To put it another way, it's not just about what we do, it's, it's about who we are, that we are to become like Christ. And that means humility is to characterize who we are, the kind of person we are 24-7, not just at church, not just around our Christian friends, but at, at the place of work, your place of business, wherever you are. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. Warfield points out that the King James says made himself of no reputation, or as Warfield puts it, made no account of himself. That is, in comparison with the needs of others, Jesus didn't just count, you know, look at his own situation and say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that or if I should do that or not. And that characterized his life and ministry, did it not? And it's to characterize us, a kind of self-forgetfulness is what humility really is. It's, it's just like a self-forgetfulness, a self-unawareness, an ignoring of how you and I will come across or be perceived in the situation. We just do what is the right thing for this other person, thinking about their needs and what, what, what should be done. And this is, of course, a timeless message. It, it means as much to us today as it did 2,000 years ago to the Philippians and was needed then, of course. But it, it seems to me that in our self-absorbed culture, that we all marinate in and soak in every day, it bombards us everywhere, doesn't it? That this is an even more timely message because ours is a culture that values style over substance, does it not? Image over reality, perception over truth. Imagine Jesus caring about his image. <laughs> it's almost as if he went out of his way to not care about his image, to almost tweak the noses of, of those who who opposed him, or what the Poles said of him. Hard to imagine that. Warfield says this at the end of his sermon. He says, a life of self-sacrificing unselfishness is the most divinely beautiful life that a man can lead. Yeah, great. I, I, just, I just pondered that all week. Let me say it again. A life of self-sacrificing unselfishness is the most divinely beautiful life that man can lead.
This is not the end of the story. And I'll finish with this. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bowing, confessing. We do a lot of that here, don't we? Those are acts of worship. And an act of worship is about as worthless as can be if it's coerced or forced. Now, these, this is what, what Paul is saying is here. Every knee will do this, and every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow. Imagine that. Hitler, Voltaire, Nietzsche. And not just the infamous sinners, but that, that unknown person, person you don't even know, who just never gives God a thought. Just goes through life and never even gives a, a, a thought to, to who his creator is. Alas, for many, it's going to be too late, though. They will bow and they will confess, albeit too late. Jesus said this, Matthew 13, verse 41. So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what of those who have the mind of Christ? What of those who take up the cross and live the life that is outward focused toward the needs of others and not inward focused on self? Jesus goes on to say, then, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So he who has ears, let him hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.